0: Psalm 126, one through three. It seemed like a dream, too good to be true, when God returned Zion's exiles. We laugh, we sang, and we couldn't believe our good fortune. We were to talk of the nations. God was wonderful to them. God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. And now, God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives so those who planted their crops in despair will shout hurrahs at the harvest. So those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessing. And that
1: is today's reading. You may see. Congratulations if you've quickly figured out and surmised that this is unplanned and unscheduled. Uh, for those of you that might be visiting, let, let me uh, allay your fears. I am not sure and I will not be giving the sermon this morning. My name is Kevin Fitzsimmons and uh, as an elder Irishman of a certain age, uh, I have been known from time to time to say things and my wife, uh, my sweet wife and beautiful wife will attest to this, I've been known to say things out loud that need to be said well out loud and today is such a time um i want to take just a moment of your time this morning and uh talk about char and the music that has been here for the last few years but first some some quick perspective Uh, i do believe that music is one of god's greatest gifts to us Uh, he's given us many beautiful things and music is certainly one of those i think we all would agree that. Uh, That music can reach us, uh, inspire us, challenge us, uh, enhance us uh, in ways that the spoken and written world just can't get to. I know C.S. Lewis wrote about it and and, uh, talked about how in this present life, music most evokes the feelings of uh, ecstasy and infamy that God has in store for us. The irony is, if you look at music uh, in a stark way, music is really made up of mathematics. Um, and I have nothing against mathematics, but they're, they're cold, they're, they're stark. Uh, a quick look at uh, the semantics and terminology used around music reveals this. Uh, you have an octave of eight notes, you have three-four time, four-four time, half time, you have three-part harmony, you have. Uh, C7 chords. You have a song you like at 92 BPM, which has to do with beats per minute. If you have your piano tuned, the tuner comes to your house, he strikes a tuning fork, and he looks for that fork to vibrate exactly 440 times per second, and when it does, that becomes the note A on your piano. He works higher and lower from there. Now again, I have nothing against math, but it is by nature cold. If you combine that with uh, certain things that our culture has moved towards uh, in the in the last years, there's a there's sort of a danger. Uh, I again have nothing against computers and technology. I use them all the time, like all of you. But uh, those things sometimes can remove the soul of what music is all about. Uh, you know, you tell me how much soul techno music has. Uh, the uh, uh, The the irony is, again, you may hear a song on the radio or Spotify that you like, only come to find out later that there is no bass player, there's no drummer, there's no piano player. It's all digitized. So again, uh, I make that point only to talk about the soul that can be present in music. As far as technology goes, again, uh, this is not the time or place for that discussion, but you, you can see where it could head. Uh, removing the soul from the music. Uh, You may have heard it predicted that in the future times most businesses will only have two employees. There will be a man and a dog. The man will be there to clean the floors. The dog is there to make sure the man does not touch the machines. So, what can an individual do with his or her music if they want to learn an instrument and, and do something with the music? There really are three Sort of mountains you would have to climb uh, to kind of get with your instrument first of all you'd have to practice to the point where you could actually take a written piece that someone else did and portray and play that piece so note for note rhythm for rhythm you're able to articulate that and get that out and that's in and of itself is quite an accomplishment the second mountain would be to take that same piece that has been written by someone else and that you would add something to it so in other words as you're playing it you would inflect a particular accent, note, phrase, whatever it is, to heighten that music. So that's the second stage. First stage is somebody else wrote, second stage is what you've done to add to it. Third, and this mountain very few people get to, it has to do with what you play. So as you're taking this piece that someone else has written, you're adding to it, what you choose to play on your instrument in turn evokes and enhances the other musicians for them to react spontaneously to where you've headed musically so let me bring this home uh i say all this to give you some perspective of what's happened here in terms of music over the years and what uh, what what is what is char started here and i pray continue here char obviously has his foot firmly planted on all three of those mountains i described and then some his 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 playing ability his vocals are simply outstanding But if you look closer, you'll see a couple other things I want to highlight before I get out of your way here. First of all, uh, the music chosen here is not cookie-cutter Christian music. Nothing against that, per se, but uh, you would be hard-pressed to find the music that's played here at any other church. And that's because it's an intentional choice in terms of what Char has done over the years. Choosing music uh, specifically uh, uh, in, in the sense of being able to most clearly evoke and highlight and underscore what God is doing. It could be tied into a sermon, could be tied into the scripture, or both. So there's an intentionality that comes week to week. Thirdly, if you don't believe me, ask any musician that's played with char, he never plays the the song the same way twice, (laughs) ever. We just did Emmanuel, we rehearsed that an hour ago for the sound check, totally different. My point is, um, he does that, again, with intentionality. He is going to pause, he's going to highlight, he's going to uh, repeat a chorus, repeat a verse, repeat a phrase, because at that moment, that phrase, that verse, those words, are most clearly evoking what he's trying to get across in terms of worshiping God. I'll end by saying this. Uh, a few years ago, I had an experience at the church that I've never forgotten. And it maybe most clearly says what I'm trying to uh, awkwardly say, uh, there was a Sunday and uh, right before the service started about 25 people came in the door, obviously some type of group. And uh, service was over, uh, I was packing up my stuff and uh, the, the, the group of people was probably ages late teens to late thirties. And uh, five or six of them came over to me and said, hey, really love the music and wanted to talk about what they liked about it. Come to find out, they had been at a four day conference. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, in San Francisco with hundreds of other people uh, in a Christian conference. And they'd heard about this church and wanted to come spend Sunday here, but the other three days they were in the city going to this conference. Uh, I guess at the conference they had a, quite a big music show. Uh, they had you know four backup singers, a horn section, eight or nine musicians. They had the lights going, they had the fog, the smoke going, uh, quite a part of production. And what they said was, they said, well, we really love your music. It really struck us. And we've been listening to music for full on three days. What we liked about your music that you guys played was it was was humble, it was honest, and it was soulful. And I thought, wow, there's not much of a better compliment you could ever get in terms of music. So Char, uh, I want to thank you for your humble, your honest, and your soulful music. And on behalf of the church body, uh, you know we, we all acknowledge that you've been given many gifts as a leader, as a pastor, but we thank you for sharing your musical gift with us all these years.
0: Thank you, Kevin. Very kind of you. Um, Well, if you are not aware, today is actually my last teaching uh, here at Refuge as an elder. Here, I'll say that. Hopefully, we'll see you guys again in the future and be able to visit and share what the Lord is doing. Um, And so, I haven't written anything down, but maybe I'll have some closing thoughts to share. I'm not really sure. Um, But we are also beginning our first teaching in advent for the advent season so if you're not familiar with advent or the term advent it means coming in latin and in the weeks leading up to christmas advent helps to prepare our hearts our minds our souls for the coming the arrival of god with us it's the season that the church calendar where we remember both the coming of Jesus into the world as a helpless child, but also we reflect on, we remember his promises to come again to reign in power and glory, his promise to make all things new. Uh, There are four themes traditionally to Advent, and so we're gonna be covering all of them in the season, and they are hope, love, joy, and peace. And so today we're going to talk about hope. And traditionally, this is where Advent begins. It begins in hope. And in the first week of Advent, the church uh, has taken a realistic look at the world around us. Taking a look at the darkness, the sin, the evil, but also taking stock of our own lives, of the darkness still within of the brokenness still at work, um, of the evil that still resides. And when we do so, we realize that we are a people and a world in desperate need of hope. Now, we know what it is to hope, don't we? Kids, what are you hoping for this year? Christmas, good, yeah, that's that's on point. What's another thing you hope for? Presence, good, yeah. Anything else? Hope for, mommy and daddy. hope for mommy and daddy. Well, that's good. I'm not going anywhere. Um, so, often in our modern use of it, kids did a really good job this morning, but I think as adults, we often use hope in, in a negative sense. We always use it in terms of like hoping against hope, like, oh, I hope I don't lose my job. I hope I don't get hurt doing this thing I probably shouldn't be doing. I hope uh, I get into this program, uh, maybe kids, I hope I get to go to Disneyland again. But what we're actually saying is we're we're wishing very strongly that something will happen or won't happen, although we know it's not very likely. And so hope is actually taken on, fascinating, it's taken on negative connotations in our cultural use of it. but. When Scripture speaks of hope, it speaks of hope in a sense of certainty of what is to come. And so, when, when uh, actually the Hebrew word for hope speaks of tension, because there's a longing. We're, we're certain. That our hope is coming. And so we're longing for the day that it arrives. And Peter, in his epistle, he calls Christians to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them when Jesus appears. Paul speaks of the hope of glory. Right, so Christian hope is always pointing us to the day of the Lord, the day when all sin and evil and wrong is judged and dealt with, the day when God makes all things new, the day when all that is sad and wrong and broken in the world is put away, and God makes everything new, beautiful and true once and for all. That's the biblical hope that we have and that's what we want to talk about this morning. Uh, biblical hope, an assurance, strong confidence that God is going to do good to us and this world in the future. So the question is what, well, what does Advent have to do with hope? Well as I said traditionally in the first week of Advent the church has taken a realistic look at the world around us. It takes a look at the darkness. Of Fleming Rutledge in uh, few of her sermons, she has this phrase that she uses, and I really appreciate it. She says, Advent begins in the dark. It must begin in the dark. It must take a realistic look at the world in which we live in, in order that we might actually set our hope on the day of the Lord, that we might put our hope in the right place. And I think when we do so, right, when we look around at the darkness going on, we realize that we are a people and a world in desperate need of hope. And so the question really is what or who can fix the deep brokenness and division of our world? I mean, 2020, um, that, uh, even saying this, I just feel so cliche, oh, 2020, 20, everything is 2020 now, isn't it? But truly, I think in this year, more than any other in my lifetime, it has caused me to see the darkness and evil that is all around us. I mean, from everything from the racism and hatred we've seen going on in our country, from the destruction and disease, even just the fraud surrounding, remember the PPP loans that were being given to you know, small businesses and these things, and we just saw all this fraud going on with them. I mean, it was just disgusting. We've seen so much selfishness at work. The simple fact that we are living right now in a post-truth society, we just feel that every single day. It just feels chaotic, it feels confusing. This is darkness, this is evil, this is wrong and it is healthy and right for us as the church to take a deep, long look at this. To not ignore it, to not stick our heads in the sand but to face it. We've also seen the evil and darkness within ourselves. And so again, the question, what or who can fix the brokenness of our personal lives? We think about, we educate ourselves, we try to manage our vices, we go to therapy, we do self care and pampering, but for all of that, we still experience inner brokenness by the sin and wrong we have done And this wrong and the sin that has been done to us. And I could go on just talking about the brokenness of our relationships and how that comes, I believe, from within our own inner brokenness is affecting the relationships that we have. We probably just experienced this over the Thanksgiving weekend, meeting with family, talking about politics, talking about our opinions about things. There's deep brokenness and darkness at work in our world, in our lives, in our own community. Plain and simple, we are a people in need of real hope, real hope. I think about actually, as I was studying for this, I was thinking about uh, Obama, I remember a couple, uh, his first campaign. I remember what his slogan was? It was hope. I remember he had that like really cool poster that they had done, and it seemed so like, yes, hope, but even thinking about that, just looking at where we are now and Whatever you feel about the Obama presidency, that is neither here nor there. But just to say this, I think it is clear that there is no president, there is no man, there is no politic, there is no organization that can bring the hope that we actually need for the world, that we need for our lives. And so this is what Advent is all about, real hope. It's waiting and looking for that deliverance, for that hope that can only be found in the return of the king. As Paul says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be made like his glorious body. Fleming Rutledge, again, in her book, she said this. She's quoting uh, W.H. Auden. She says, nothing can save us that is possible. Think about that for a second. Nothing can save us that is possible. When we think about what we're talking about, hope in scripture, this is impossible. Nothing on earth, no work of human ingenuity or planning can make the hope that we need possible. Nothing can save us that is actually possible. She goes on, the human race cannot expect to receive any lasting comfort from the world. The comfort that we so desperately need must come from somewhere else in a burst of transcendent power breaking upon our ears from beyond our sphere all together. And that's what Advent is about is that we are waiting for, we are longing, we are living in the tension of, we are waiting for that miraculous breaking in of heaven to earth. Now, I chose to do my last teaching out of Psalm 126. This is not an Advent psalm. This is not a Christmas passage. And yet, I felt that within Psalm 126, there are these Advent Themes. The Advent Spirit is here. I see both the first and second Advent themes happening here, so maybe follow me for a minute through Psalm 126. The psalm comes from the post-exilic period. We've talked a little bit about that at Refuge over the years, but the post-exilic period, remember, was after Israel had returned from their exile in Babylon. And if you think about, they didn't come home to, you know, uh, curated lawns and, you know, nice vineyards and houses that were swept and kept. They came back to devastation. They came back to thistles and weeds and thorns and just complete darkness, bereavement, demonic oppression over the land. That's what they came back to. They had gone into exile, and they came back to the land. Remember, they were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then it says suddenly God appears. He brings salvation. Cyrus gives this decree. The people go back to the land. Salvation and restoration broke forth in a moment, and the celebration began, and that's what the psalm is about. It's about these people who were living in darkness, and then the salvation of God appears for them. And then there is this beautiful celebration. There's a reflection on the gracious, excuse me, the gracious restoration of God's people. The psalmist says God restored his people. He restored their lives, their possessions, their land, their culture, their home, their worship at Jerusalem. For them, it was like a dream come true. It was like a dream too good to be true. They were pinching themselves. It's a miracle. It was, it was God's deliverance, it was his salvation. And again, this is how it's happened at each stage in history. It has been radically dark and oppressive, a demonic presence almost residing over people's lives and the land and God has broken through in salvation. And that's what this Psalm reflects on. First advent, God breaking through the darkness. But then we also see in verse four the theme of second advent. It says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. So the psalmist here is looking back to a time where restoration happened, where salvation broke in, where deliverance came, where light shone into the darkness, and now the psalmist is looking again at a dark period, at devastation, at oppression, and asking once again, Lord, do it again. Pierce the darkness bring your salvation the people are once again waiting waiting Waiting, waiting for that miraculous breaking in, waiting for the return of the king, waiting for the banishment and judgment of all evil, waiting for the healing of the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of their lives. They're waiting. And I feel that as I read this passage, I feel my heart saying the same thing. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Bring salvation, pierce the darkness, bring hope to our lives once again. And this really is the Advent spirit. This is what Advent is all about. And what an incredible year to really embrace the spirit of Advent. We're living in the tension, right, that Jesus has come, he will come again, that God has worked powerfully in the past, and we're waiting for God to do it again. But here's the thing about Advent that I think that we need to highlight is that here in Psalm 126, what the psalmist is doing is he's looking back at God's deliverance, at God's salvation, and it gives him confidence that God will work again. And this is how first and second Advent are to work for us as well. In Advent, we, we do the same as the days around us grow darker, both physically and metaphorically. We remember that at a bleak and hopeless point in history, the people who walked in darkness saw a great light. And upon those who sat in the shadow of death, a light had dawned. This reflection on the first coming of Jesus Christ gives us confidence in his future return. We say, do it again, Lord. Restore our fortunes again, O Lord. This is what we are looking for. This is what we are longing for. Again, from Fleming Rutledge, he says, the church lives in Advent. That's an interesting idea. The church actually lives in Advent. That is to say the church lives between two Advents. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ will come. We do not know the day or the hour. And if you find this tension almost unbearable at times, then you understand the Christian life. We should feel that tension on our lives that We are waiting for the breaking in again of heaven to earth. We are waiting for that sudden appearance of the Lord when he will transform our bodies, when he will transform everything around us. And until that day, nothing else will do. Everything else is just secondary. Like, yes, thank you, Lord. I'm thankful for that blessing. I'm thankful for this gift of family. I'm thankful for these pleasures but what I am ultimately looking for is the breaking in of heaven to earth and so we live in that tension now we live as a people who are waiting but we wait in hope our psalm again it pictures a sowing of tears and a reaping of shouts of joy So what does that mean? What does it mean to sow in tears and then to reap in shouts of joy? As I was reflecting on this, for me, it seems to me that we don't stop the labor of the kingdom because the sin and darkness around us is too great. That's something that we actually have to remind ourselves of. You ever feel that way, just, gosh, reading the news. You just need to like go to therapy after reading the news these days. It is the most depressing thing there is. And I have found myself many times actually just have to like put all of that away and just sit in the presence of the Lord, sit with scripture, remember who I am because of who God is, remembering what my calling is as, someone who has been redeemed by God, remembering the mission that we're on. We have to remind, myself, uh, re- remind ourselves, sowing tears, reaping in shouts of joy, we don't stop the labor of the kingdom because the sin and darkness around us is too great, even though it's sometimes feel that it is. It also means that we don't just give up because we ourselves can never usher in the kingdom of God. Like, you know, Well, what does it really matter? Like, Jesus is just going to come when he comes anyway, right? So might as well just hang out. Might as well just kick back and relax. What this verse means, I believe, is it means that we labor for the kingdom with tears for the state and brokenness of the world. It means we labor and work because we have hope. We have confidence that it will not always be so. And then then as we work, our lives are actually a sign of that hope. Like what are these people doing working in this way? What are these people doing working with such optimism and such joy? We are signs of what is to come. We are signs of hope as we labor in the work of the kingdom. In Advent... But as we said, the church lives in Advent. So as Christians, I guess I'll say, we celebrate the coming of the Christ child, what God has already done, and we wait in expectation of the full coming of God's reign on earth and for the return of Christ, what God will yet do. But to quote the common book of prayer, this waiting is not passive waiting. It's active waiting, and like an expectant mother knows, this waiting involves preparation, exercise, nutrition, care, prayer, work, and birth involves pain and blood, tears, joy, release. Likewise, we are in a world pregnant with hope, and as we live in the expectation of the coming of God's kingdom on earth, as we wait, we also work and cry, pray, ache because we are the midwives of another world and so this is the vision for us that as we wait second advent that we do it like this psalm says that we sow with tears that yes we look at the darkness but it doesn't stop us from working yes we are moved by the darkness and so we do it in a sense of mourning as we labor in the kingdom. But we don't do it as those who have no hope. We do it with a confidence in the return of the Lord. That's why we're laboring. That's why we're sowing. That's why we're putting seed into the ground because we believe that the harvest is yet to come. So as the Lord Jesus came before, the promise is that he will come again. We know he came in lowliness and weakness In the first advent, he will return in power and glory in the second advent. We are waiting the appearing of the Lord, the righteous judge, and in that waiting, we labor and lament, we work and weep, we pray and prophesy, we love and suffer long, and when he appears, when he appears, we will not be disappointed i uh you guys know i was gone a couple weeks ago uh down in orange county it was house hunting and i had the opportunity actually my dad was out of town i had the opportunity to just spend time with my mom for about four days just her and i and it's been a long time since we've done something like that and we were having a conversation about the final restoration of all things and I love my mom because she, she, well I love my mom for many reasons, but one thing I love about my mom is she loves to imagine. She loves to um, paint pictures, especially out of scripture. And so she was talking about, she's like, you ever think about that when God restores all things, a true restoration of all things doesn't just mean that God makes everything new but that he gives back what was lost. He gives back what was lost. And I think about, remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about when Jesus uh, has that conversation with the rich young ruler. And then he says, whoever has you know, left lands and father and mother and sacrificed this and that for my sake and for the kingdom will receive a hundredfold in the life to come a hundredfold in the life to come. And when we think about the promises of God, of what he will do for us, that God will not just do good for us, that God will not just clean up this world in the end, but he will actually restore, that he will repay, that he will redeem. That means to buy back. That means everything that was lost. Every moment of goodness that was lost in our relationships, maybe a mother that we lost early on or a father or a relationship that we lost that we never had, those opportunities that were missed, those things that were broken that we can never get back in this life, the evil and injustices done that God will not just fix the future, but he will redeem the past. This is an incredible truth that I guarantee has not actually permeated our minds. And Paul says exactly that. He says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it hasn't even entered into our imagination the things that God has prepared for those who love him. This is incredible. I'm thinking about losing this community here. That even that, the things that we sacrifice for the kingdom of God, that God will restore these things. Nothing is lost. It's just in the winter, in the kingdom of God. And spring will break forth, life will burst into being, That is the promise of the new creation. That is the hope that we have. And it is right for us to live in the longing of that because nothing in this world will compare with what God has waiting for us. Advent is meant to take us from darkness and despair it's meant to take a good, long, hard look at the world and all its brokenness, all its evil and its wrong, and then to turn our eyes, ears, mouths, and hearts to the Lord who has promised to one day judge in righteousness and truth. We look to the one who promises to redeem all things, the one who promises to make all things new. I guess to summarize it all, this is what I'm trying to say. In Advent, we aren't just looking forward to Christmas Day, though we are. A one day of peace, a one day of comfort, a one day of hope against their 364 other days of darkness and despair. In Advent, we are looking to and longing for the ultimate hope, the ultimate peace, the ultimate joy the ultimate love of the new creation. And so in this Advent season, may the Lord teach us and increase our love and our hope in Him as we enter into the tension of this Advent season. May our hearts and minds be turned to hope, to long, to wonder, to imagine what that day will be like when God raises all that is lost to life again when he redeems and restores all things. I know we'll be here next week for service with you and we'll be able to experience hymn night with many of you, but I just wanna say, Refuge, if I don't have the opportunity, it has been an absolute pleasure to be uh, one of your pastors for the last 15 years I wouldn't trade it for the world Um, and I've said this already but you guys have just taught us so much you've been an incredible family community to us and we carry you with us in our hearts Uh, if you're in Southern California we might have a place for you to stay depends on how big your family is Um, but please stay in touch we love you all And um, sorry this morning was so jumbled. Um,
1: Let's close out by worshiping together.